Hello and welcome back to the IPA's Looking Forward, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas. This week, finally, the debate is turning towards how are we going to get back to work? How are we going to get back into our offices and factories? How are we going to get children back into schools? And indeed, how are we going to get back to travelling, even if it means that the destination is only New Zealand and the only tourists we'll ever see are from New Zealand? Will they become a seventh state? Maybe not quite yet, but we'll be looking at that as well. Later on in our Books and Culture segment, we've got some rippers for you today. We've got a very apposite book on the Spanish flu of 100 years ago. For those who are feeling like the lockdown is the end of the world, they'll enjoy hearing about Oscar Wilde's reflections on his time in Reading Jail, what it's like to be under a true lockdown. And I'll be talking about Winston Churchill just for something to do. Joining me today to talk about these and other momentous issues, I have first of all my co-host, Dr. Chris Berg from RMIT University. Good morning, Scott. Great to have you, Chris. Also, of course, an adjunct fellow at the Institute of Public Affairs. And joining us today is Dara McDonald, a research fellow at the Institute of Public Affairs. Great to be here. It's great to have you back on the show, Dara. For those listening, don't forget this is a production of the Institute of Public Affairs. To find out how you can join or donate, please do go to ipa.org.au. But first up, Chris, how are we going to get back to work? <laughs> what a great question. I'm glad you asked. So Scott Morrison had a press conference yesterday, as you say, very explicitly turning the discussion on how we're going to get back to work. The um, uh, key thing that I took away from that press conference is the scale of the challenge. So um, uh, there are 1 million Australians out of work at the moment. There are an estimated 4 million Australians on JobKeeper subsidies. So that says to us that nearly 40% of the entire Australian workforce is either out of work or, um, or their work is being subsidised by the government. This is one of the reasons that the restrictions um, are costing us 4 billion dollars a week. Um, Morrison was touting some new guidelines released by Safe Work Australia about how to manage risks in the workplace. And at the moment, it does look like the strategy will be um, uh, announce a grand reopening and just hope that private sector companies and non-profits actually return to work. I wonder how likely that is going to be given once the government takes off the restrictions that they've imposed, or at least eases the restrictions, then it becomes on us. It becomes on us to manage our risks. It becomes on employers to decide what constitutes a safe workplace, subject, of course, to new regulations, no doubt. Um, but I thought, um, uh, Dara, you've got quite a background in working through some of these questions, obviously not pandemic-related questions, but um, questions about corporate law and um, uh, those sorts of things. So I wonder what your takeaway was. How quickly are we going to get back to work and how quickly do you think people will want to get back to work? Well, it's a good question in the sense that we actually, we really don't know what, what the future holds in this respect and it's definitely going to be, you know, in the few months and even, you know, a year or so into the future, um, it will be an ever-evolving um, policy space and I'm sure that there will be always new guidelines and so on being released and you can see in Safe Work Australia that they've released new principles around how to manage your workplace and it's, it's divided into industries but in the end they're just principles and it's up to the, um, the state, wealth, health and safety 
uh, bodies that are currently regulating the space to actually make decisions, which leads to the question that it's probably going to be um, very different between different states as to what they implement and in terms of what regulations that uh, businesses will have to follow. So it's, it's going to be very much a state-by-state state basis as to what um, what comes in terms of being, you know, the regulations that businesses are going to have to follow. Um, I, so, no, um, just yeah. One of the things I want to uh, explore, though, just before you go on, you've talked there about the the health and safety regulations and uh but of course you know as, as someone who's been involved in corporate law there are overlapping uh and i've had a look at some of these guidelines so there are health and safety guidelines but then of course we we operate in inside the realm of employment law um we've we've also got health restrictions um still on on movement um you know soon to be lifted perhaps but um you know, in terms of what we can require employees to be at work for as opposed to working from home. The health and safety guidelines are only one part of the picture, aren't they? Yeah, of course. And, I mean, this, the problem is this is going to be interlocking regulations and also interlocking bodies regulating the space as in terms of, you know, Fair Work Australia um, is now being given permission to arbitrate disputes between um, employees and employers under the JobKeeper, which will obviously extend into um, areas when they actually go back to work and whether their their duties, which they're asked to perform, are in their remit. Of course, employer, employers are technically um, able to give the uh, employee directions and change their duties depending on you know what, what work is available but um it's also possible for the employee to dispute that and take it to the fair work commission thereby um you know hamstringing the ability of the business to be able to uh react agilely to the evolving uh, space and implement um changes as they see fit so it's not just like one area that is being which is being changed is this interlocking um, regulation from the Fair Work Commission and the um, WHS regulation bodies in various states and obviously the federal bodies that are all going to be mishmashed together and um, create a very difficult space for employee employers to navigate going forward. This is something that this intersects with something that we've been talking about a lot. Scott um, on the podcast, which is um, the view that even if the government hadn't made any, um, uh, hadn't enforced mandatory social distancing, social distancing would have occurred regardless and different companies and different individuals um, would have responded um, uh, in order to protect their own health. Um, and it's notable that the guidelines from the government, or at least the ruling from the government, certainly here in Victoria, has been always, if you can work from home, you must work from home. And different companies have had to make decisions about what can work from home actually looks like. Is there um, is there jobs, are, are there jobs capable of being um, uh, taken to telework? environments where that those calculations aren't going to change in the new environment even if the state premiers and chief ministers announced tomorrow that we can all go back to work there are a lot of companies that will decide that they don't want to take the risk they don't want to take the risk from 
um, a health and safety perspective, from a um, legal perspective, and just from a pastoral care perspective. It's also the case that a lot of employees won't go back to work, even if their employer decides that it's safe to do so. And I guess the question is, and I know you've been looking at this, the question is, how will we be able to navigate those choices? Yes, well, uh, for employers in Australia, it's it's never been a particularly easy job anyway to navigate through the, <laughs> the maze of, um, of regulations and red tape and particularly those that come out of the industrial relations sense. But um, yes, as, as you say, it's all very well for the Prime Minister uh, to say we should be back at work by July. And I mean, God bless him. But um, when the opinion poll suggests that the Australian population is, is roughly divided down the middle as to whether or not we should, and certainly social media um, seems to be full of people who are just hiding under their blankets and feel like the country should, you know, for the, for the rest of eternity as well, they can vote with their feet. So an employer, the scenario that uh, interests me is an employer can say, radio, you know, we're reopening the office with appropriate health and safety management plan and social distancing and uh, disinfection guidelines and so on. And the employee will simply say, uh, I do not consider it a, a safe workplace to return to. And also, I believe I can work from home. And if the employee says, well, on what basis do you think you can work from home? The employee <laughs> will say, well, I've been doing it for the you last did, yeah. eight weeks. So um, these, these are the sort of disputes uh, that Dara were referring to. Um, Katrina Grace Kelly had a great article in uh, The Australian on, on Saturday about disputes which are already arising under the aegis of the um, of the JobKeeper scheme. And uh, I would expect to see many more. Yeah, particularly this is the realm of the WHS bodies on state levels to, um, to arbitrate such disputes where the employee says this is not a safe work environment and the employer says, no, it is. Um, yeah, this is another dispute that would end up in a bureaucratic arbitration. I guess there's, there's something that we should start trying to understand, which is that regardless of how much the government has responded at the policy level, that the private sector and communities are going to respond and make their own risk assessments about um, the, the danger of the pandemic themselves, regardless of what, what, what governments do. Um, and we've always said this, um, uh, this is what we're seeing in Sweden, for instance, where there's advice rather than mandatory guidelines about social distancing. And, and social distancing has occurred as we try to kick the economy up again, as we try to return to prosperity, um, those are precisely the same calculations that people are going to be made. Um, it turns the onus back onto us. In fact, I, we've been having this conversation just in, in it, I, I know a lot of conversations have been having in families. So if it is the case that you're allowed to go and see your family members, socialise with your family members in New South Wales, it's now two people um, uh, can come into someone else's home plus children. In Western Australia, it's um, gatherings of 10 and so forth. All that does is put the onus back on families themselves. And as we come into Mother's Day, I think a lot of families around the country are having conversations about, we'd like to see you, we're legally allowed to see you, but maybe it's not in our best interest or maybe uh, we have different risk perceptions and so forth. I think it, it just gets more complicated from here. Whereas previously the private sector could rely on, um, oh, well, it's against the law for us to go into work. Now these things have to be socially negotiated. 
And that's and that's partly where this uh, I think what Morrison does understand is it's it is uh, partly the um, uh, the leadership of the national cabinet and the, and the role of politicians to create create that momentum. And um, I just want to amplify, by the way, this is a bit if you'll allow digression. Um, that go wretched to go, go to town. That wretched Imperial College uh, modelling that has. Uh, you know, been it's been such a disservice to the UK. Um, one of the things it did is said you couldn't possibly follow Sweden because you know here's this modelling about how disastrous it would be, and you know that translated into figures um, of about twenty five thousand projected deaths uh, from COVID nineteen. Fraser Nelson in the Spectator has pulled this apart, and. How was that modelling done? Well, they assumed that in the absence of government restrictions of the kind that we've seen in the UK and, and New Zealand and, and you know, to, to a large extent in Australia, there would be no social distancing. Um, you know, the, the, the idea that humans are incapable of forming their own judgments was actually hardwired into the Imperial College modelling. And, uh, and of course... Uh, the number of deaths in Sweden, it's not insignificant, but it's like an order of magnitude. It's a tenth of what those projections would have implied. Uh, and these are the sort of idiocies we've seen. And um, it does put the onus back on it. And and as I say, I'm concerned about the uh, significant number of Australians who, who don't seem to want that freedom, who just would find it easier for the government to keep us all in lockdown and remove the need to actually engage with that problem it's a, it's an interesting framing isn't it um and it's it's the framing of the state to be all libertarian about it and i've been thinking about um so i'll talk in a moment about um uh the spanish flu but in new south wales at least during the spanish flu in 1919 for australia um uh, face masks were made compulsory now the reason that face masks have been such a political dispute in um, uh, it, it, during this crisis is because the government decided that there weren't enough face masks. Um, the, uh, they had to import lots of face masks, so they told us not to wear face masks and leave them for the medical workers. Now, um, uh, so it's become this big policy question about, well, how will the government be able to provide us with all the face masks if, if um, we were all to either adopt them or even make it mandatory. Now, in 1919, there wasn't a official government face mask policy. There wasn't a national czar of acquiring face masks. They just we, we just all made them ourselves. The private sector, per se, responded. We all made those calculations. We all figured out how to adhere to um, the new restrictions, and we tried to go about our business. And I think the so much of the discussion in March was about, well, you know, if the government doesn't do this, then um, uh, then then it, there will be no private sector response. The people won't understand, and we'll all like sheep just receive. Um, uh, we'll all just get COVID. In fact, I think what's going to happen now over the next few months is we're going to see what the nature of that private sector response is given uncertain risks about the disease. I would say that's already happened. If you look at lots of the private producers of face marks already already stepping into gear. I mean, I know Scott's children have been making face marks and I've seen lots of my 
you know, friends on Facebook have been making face masks in their spare time. But even um, alcohol producers... I just want to drill down on that, Scott. Have your children been making face masks? Absolutely. My 15-year-old um, has a nice little uh, side hustle going. Oh, and, wow. um, uh, in fact, I... We'll go and find one in a moment so that I can demonstrate <laughs> what she's managed to do. Awesome. Uh, sorry, Dara. No, no, I, was, I, was just, I was just saying that also alcohol-producing companies and my mum, who also has a small business, um, who had a whole, whole bunch of um, food-grade alcohol, has started producing hand sanitizer as well and has been making a, a bit mm. of a killing having a side hustle um, making hand sanitizer purely because people had already before the lockdown started taking precautions to protect themselves in terms of face masks and hand sanitizer and you know you know all these sorts of things that people often went out and bought on their own you know uh uh you know own absolutely rather than having to wait for the the government to tell them what to do in terms of keeping themselves safe Still on this theme, I, I would also observe, I mean, I think any listener who's who has actually uh, stuck their head out the front door and um, uh, gone about their business or gone to get a coffee would have noticed that just, I think in the last week, there are more and more people out and about, um, you know, notwithstanding the guidelines, they weren't necessarily waiting for governments to relax the restrictions. Uh, I've been meaning to find these... Um, uh, these charts where people track the number of traffic movements in cities, but I believe it went from something like you know ninety five percent of a benchmark to about twenty five percent, and now it's back up to about forty or fifty. I mean the you know people are, people are making decisions, and uh, and of course the best kind of government leadership is simply to note what people are doing and then to claim credit for doing <laughs> it. <laughs> so so there's a bit of that going on. Yeah, and and um, I think people are reading the same data that we're reading. Um, we're looking at the number of infections there are, and we're responding regardless of government policy. Yeah, um, I'm full of digressions today. If you'll allow me to to frame this debate about health and safety, this will be the continuing challenge of the national leadership, because an approach to health and safety it does not mean you know zero incidents, zero cases. Uh, and again, Morrison, I think, has been quite articulate uh, articulate on this, that um, it's about what you do when cases are identified. And, and there's a wonderful example of this in uh, Cedar Meats in Melbourne, where there, where there has been an outbreak due to one employee um, a case in early April. They didn't realise it was connected to the workplace. And it, it does turn out to have been a cluster. But the reason... The, the penny dropped when they realised that something was happening in the workplace was they did a blood test on an employee who'd been admitted to hospital having severed his thumb. <laughs> this is obviously obviously some poor bastard working in the boning room. Uh, and I guess the, the point is health and safety risks are always need to be seen in the context of all of the risks in which society operates. And if you're an employee working in the burning room, it may well be that COVID-19 is not necessarily the greatest risk that you've actually got to deal with. Yeah, that's right. And we have to, each, com each company is going to have to do some very careful management of those risks. But more importantly, they're going to have to do a lot of really careful communication of the management of those risks. And that's a company by company thing. That is not a federal government or state government thing. Yes, that's right. One, one employee... 
uh, uh, coming down with COVID-19 does not mean the policy has failed. Um, they've been clear also, the guidelines, that does not mean you need to shut down your workplace. No, I mean, it's, it, it's a, there, there's another point, and I watched the Scott Morrison conference very closely, and it really struck me how he was strongly emphasising that the government is not pursuing an elimination strategy. So they want to be really clear that we are not planning to eliminate COVID-19 in Australia. Now, I'm not sure how much I believe that, just looking at, A, the numbers and the way the governments have res- way different governments have responded. But if that is the case, our numbers are so low that it becomes... We, we return to the original strategy, which is we're all eventually going to get it. We're all, or at least 70% of Australians are eventually going to get it. And our healthcare system is now up to scratch and capable of dealing with large quantities of people with an infectious disease. Indeed, the um, uh, we've shifted, uh, we've both flattened the curve and you know, and lifted the capacity of the healthcare healthcare system to manage it. So, even though organisations like the the Grattan Institute have been, you know, promoting this eradication strategy, the the, the government's not buying it. Other than, of course, the Victorian government, uh, which you know, officially or at least on a de facto basis, does seem to be. Uh, operating on an eradication methodology. Um, we saw Daniel Andrews this week uh, as part of uh, what's become the dispute over whether or not to reopen the schools, uh, decided to tweet about an individual case, which is a tweet teacher employed at a, at a school in, in the uh, northeastern suburbs of Melbourne uh, who was diagnosed. Uh, the school was closed for cleaning, and the Premier was tweeting about this as if, as if this proved uh, his point somewhat about how unsafe it would be to open schools. The fact that said teacher had not actually been in a classroom teaching students at any time and had been practising social distancing when he did attend the site was was completely lost. That's right, Scott. So let's let's have a let's talk about the schools for a moment. I'm sorry, I'll throw to you, Dara, in a sec. Um, So right now, the situation is as follows. Western Australian and South Australian students are back at school. Um, There is some attendance issues, but by and large, they are back at school. New South Wales and Queensland students are planned to return partially to school from next week. But Victoria is in a position, Victoria's policy at the moment, and we're recording on Wednesday is that they will only return in term three, which um, term three in Victoria is the 13th of July. Um, There's been a huge dispute between Victoria and the Commonwealth government that um, led to uh, some some verbal insults and apologies between Dan Tien, the education minister at the Commonwealth level and and, uh, Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews. Of course, the Commonwealth originally opposed school closures in March, but Victoria forced its hand and now Tian is trying to tie um, funding of independent schools to opening. Anyway, it is an absolute political schmozzle, um, which is uh, obviously why the Victorian Premier is focusing on things like um, individual cases. But um, Dara, you've been looking at quite some detail about at least just the transmission and the risks of school reopening, haven't you? Yeah, so it's, I think it's um, it's definitely telling when you look at the, the there's actually been commissioned studies that um, Australia has commissioned, particularly the National Centre for Immunisation Research and Surveillance uh, commissioned a study of schools in New South Wales, of particularly 
these are schools that had been exposed to COVID-19 and of the 863 staff and students that were exposed to COVID-19, only two had antibodies to COVID-19. So this is, this is not even a question of um, that the children aren't getting severe symptoms. They're also not transmitting the disease in the same way as you would expect if you're a parent, obviously, you know that children can be a little um, germ car carriers that bring the flu and so on home from school. But it seems that from not just this study, but studies around the world as well, that children are not actually transmitting the disease. So it, it, it begs the question as to um, why this, this has become such a political football when the, um, the evidence is actually so clearly on the side that school uh, closures are both ineffective in terms of preventing transmission but also in terms of their side effects in terms of like um, you know being you know the parents not being able to send their kids to school obviously has effects on uh, their ability to do their work and then on top of that obviously it affects kids and their ability to um, access education if they're not able to go to school. So, I mean, it's, it has like... And, and um, so, certainly, so, sorry, Dara, but just to, to put it in context, the, um, that, that is a, a fascinating study. And um, another example, perhaps, of where um, it's like the old gag about, uh, well, it works in practice, but does it work in theory? No one, no one really knows why this is the case with with children, why why they respond in this way to the virus. But as you say, the the evidence from studies appears to be you know highly consistent around the world. Uh, but Morrison went again went out of his way yesterday to to highlight the economic impact of of school closures. I think it was something like three percent of the of the job losses uh, were attributable. Um, to the to the closure of schools, um, Chris, you might have the the numbers at your your fingertips, but um, uh, you know, we're not supposedly we're not allowed to weigh up the um, the health risk versus the uh, the economic and social impacts. But uh, God, somebody has to. And, no, it, um, it, it is super interesting. I think that, um, and it's been really um, it's brought home to a lot of people how fundamental um, schools are from a national productivity perspective. Um, uh, so uh, you've got your children doing household production, which is great and sounds like you're going to make a stack of cash out of that, Scott, so good for you. Um, uh, unfortunately, my children have not been making masks and what we've, uh, I've got a, a prep and a, a year three and um, homeschooling or distance education as it, as it is more strict more strictly is just really really burdensome on the family and when we think about and we're, we've managed to handle it reasonably well and my wife stays uh, is obviously at home as well um she's in a position that she can work from home um but if you measure if we take our personal experience of the productivity loss due to the fact that we have to simultaneously work and homeschool our children and if you extrapolate that over the what 30 percent or 40 percent of the australian economy that is at work and not all of them have kids then the productivity hit to the economy is extraordinary and i and and that has obviously been the big focus of the commonwealth for um since the start of this um josh frydenberg has talked a lot about the productivity consequence of um uh, of school of closing the schools but I, th I i think it is extraordinary and i think we're starting to understand how fundamental those family relationships are to national productivity 
um, uh, if we don't get back to work, if we don't send the kids back, then um, we're going to have some really long-term hits. This is just not a sustainable model. So, Dara, how will the schools operate under the um, the regimes that the, the government's talking about, or at least the federal government? Well, I, sorry, I should rephrase that. Um, how, how are schools operating in, in states like South Australia and Western Australia where this is already happening? Well, I think in, in generally there's been a, a huge drop-off on, on attendance in schools. I think um, for most states there's been a 20% um, uh, like a 20% rate of actual uh, attendances, school attendances. Most people have actually pulled their kids out of school. Um, so I think, I think that's a an indicator of what the social position as opposed to the legal position is. And in terms of um, there really isn't any necess- you know, need to create social distancing. If, and even if you could create social distancing at schools, I think that would be totally improbable. Um, but even if, even if that was the case, uh, that, you know, you could create social distancing, the evidence suggests that you don't actually need it. Um, so I think, I think this is, one of those situations where the um, the community is maybe a little bit behind what what is actually the risk in this respect, and the fact that lots of people have pulled the, their kids out of school is an indication of people's um, you know being spooked basically by COVID nineteen, and we, there could be a bit more messaging as to how how actually how safe it is to send your kids to school as opposed to um, you know, have a, having a, a, a quite a, um, a like a, a, a spook, a spooky. Kind yeah, of, yeah, that's right. There's, so there's the, uh, that's that, that's quite right about the um, I guess the customer response, and then also uh, there's been the role that the education unions have played uh, in the different states, particularly the um, the labour states uh, opposing the uh, the reopening. And uh, sort of there's a, the gag in Victoria is that the construction unions wanted the uh, construction industry to remain open, so it did, and the education unions want the schools to remain closed, so they will. <laughs> and uh, this is so there's a bit of a, a pincer movement, but um, at least with I guess the the public response, um, if you if you can reopen the schools we'll see that atten- attendance record change over time yeah. and, um, and and people can make their, their own choices. And I think eventually you'll, you'll get to that critical mass. And one of the reasons that they did close the schools, um, as I understand in Victoria at least, was there was really precipitous drop-off in attendance in the week before. Um, so we know from our child's schools that there was something like 20% of people were keeping the kids home anyway um now that was facilitated by the fact that a lot of private sector employees had told their workers to go home as well but there was a time when um we all just made the decision to um uh, to shelter in place if you will yeah and i wonder if um these these restrictions will also have wide-ranging consequences as with you know changes to the workplace that will probably thankfully see a, a decline in hot desking and all these sorts of crazy activities. I, I say that as someone who worked for an IT company for a little while. Um, whether it will <laughs> have a, a, a commensurate effect on education and whether stuff like compulsory education and dis, dissuading people from homeschooling would have, would have a 
um, an impact here in the sense that maybe more people will not have uh, Chris's experience, but it would actually, after this, would like to homeschool their kid a bit more or, um, yeah. you know, engage yeah, well, in these sorts it, of Yeah, that's right. No, you're quite right. Putting, putting on my editor of the IPA review hat, I do have an article in the uh, forthcoming edition, which um, any member of the IPA will receive in their mailbox uh, in a week or two on uh, the merits of homeschooling written by someone who's actually done it with her children and um, I emailed a, um, a proof copy to her just yesterday and I said um, well done you've you've already created a movement that's led to about four million children being educated at home so how's that for impact we haven't even published it yet a lot of people are enjoying this so um, a lot of families have had the opportunity to um, uh, spend more time understanding what their kids are learning, um, uh, understanding how to communicate that learning better to their children as well. And I, I know that a lot of families have been able to dedicate that sort of time. Um, the feedback that we get from the teachers has, has been that a lot of families are actually asking for more content um, uh, because they, they, they want to spend more time teaching their kids. I suspect that for the families that can do so, this will be a semi-permanent change and people will be um, much more comfortable to the extent that the legal system allows them to much more comfortable um, taking some responsibility for their child's education. The socioeconomic divide I suspect of, of those who can afford to do it who can afford to have one of the parents dedicated to the task and as opposed to those where you know the, the parents yeah. need to work essentially yeah it's, it's, uh, it's, yeah and 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 the technology divide as well there are some real issues with some children at schools about um uh, they've only say got one device in the house but they've got multiple children so how do you um use one ipad to do three classes of work and um so it, hugely hugely different i know that certainly in victoria a lot of people have been allowed or some people have been allowed into the schools if they're if they don't have the sort of support that they need at home um but yeah you, you really interesting challenges there yeah i think i think your point is very good in terms of that it is definitely a divide and it, obviously having more time with your family is dependent on how how great your family is and there's lots of people that um maybe are in very difficult circumstances at home as opposed to having a cushy cushy time spending time with their fantastic family so yeah i think there's there's definitely there needs to be options for both um both circumstances and to have this kind of blanket ban that you can't send your kids to school versus you have to send your kids to school in the sense of you know previously it was very much um frowned upon if you took your kids out of school to homeschool them um hopefully the effect of this is that both choices are become you know acceptable and maybe maybe we'll finish up with a situation more like america where the the homeschooling movement is not only huge it's actually become a uh, pow powerful lobby in its own right. Maybe the um, the education unions will actually begin to regret the enthusiasm which with they um, uh, invited Australians to homeschool <laughs> their children and uh, and how long they asked them to do it for. Speaking of family, we all love it when our cousins come to visit. So one of the most interesting things that's happened this week is the invitation to Jacinda Ardern, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, to join the National Cabinet, uh, which is the state and federal leaders of Australia, to discuss cooperation, including possible travel between these two islands uh, in the South Seas, which are remarkably free of 
coronavirus in glo- in a, from a global perspective and how they might cooperate in future. Chris, is there some deeper significance to this? Yeah, just one correction. Four islands, if you think about that. Um, uh, so you, you're right. Jacinda Ardern uh, joined the National Cabinet um, for two reasons. She was briefing um, the premiers and chief ministers about um, uh, their policy responses. Of course, New Zealand has had a um, much more extensive restrictions um, and, in my view, somewhat absurd restrictions on things like banning takeaway food and all that sort of thing, but they're starting to ease those because they're um, uh, at zero or near zero. Um, And more importantly, and more interestingly, is this idea that there might be a travel bubble with New Zealand in coming months, not weeks, as the um, Prime Minister pointed out. I think there's there's two things to talk about. First of all, um, the significance of having um, uh, the New Zealand Prime Minister actually on an Australian uh, public policy um, uh, discussion forum, which apparently hasn't happened since the Second World War, um, uh, as uh, the Prime Minister, our Prime Minister, reported. Um, the special relationship between New Zealand and Australia, to the extent that um, we are both remarkable successes in tackling COVID nineteen, I, I would expect just keeps expanding. Um, what we're seeing already is a much closer policy union. Um, and I suspect that as this goes on, if the COVID-19, um, uh, if our bubble continues as it is and our success relative to the world, rest of the world continues, I think that we're going to see a great expansion of that political and policy relationship with potentially long-term consequences. There's certainly a um, a long backstory to this relationship. It was uh, we go back to 1890 when the uh, New Zealand sent some delegates to the uh, the original Federation conference, uh, and and in the end, of course, uh, they they said that they weren't particularly interested in joining with the Australian Federation. The the circumstances were too different. The um, climate was too different. Uh, the, one of the representatives made some reference to the fact that the um, uh, the uh, Europeans who had immigrated to uh, into New Zealand were of different uh, of a different character that, to those who had come into Australia, which presumably was a none too subtle reference to the convict stain on uh, on the Australia. fact that we're all criminals. Yep. That's, yeah, that's, oh, right. that's it's a fair call. You have to say, yeah, that's that's right. And who who can blame them? And uh, and they were fresh from their um, uh, the resolution to the Maori Wars. And the last thing they wanted was some Australians blundering into that um, relationship and uh, stuffing that up. So um, they were never particularly interested, but uh, uh, certainly there was a lot of thought on the Australian side that it could happen. If you know, There's a reason why we have a suburb in Canberra called Manuka in honour of New Zealand. Uh, we have a Canberra Avenue that was originally slated to be Wellington Avenue when when the city was laid out as early as uh, I think it was 1913. So there was always an Australian dream that somehow we could convince our our Kiwi cousins to get involved. But of course they're not stupid. They look at the way our federation actually works, and they've had remarkably and understandably very little interest in actually doing so. But this might this uh, so I don't think that uh, it, it's fun to imagine there would be a seventh state, um, which would, <laughs> which if you look at population numbers would make it a minor state in the Australian Federation. So that's not very attractive from the New Zealand perspective. But it is very plausible, and I think um, as long as our bubble 
functions as a bubble, as long as it's unlikely that we open to the rest of the world um, in, in coming months or even up to 18 months or so, um, it's very likely that we just get much more policy integration. Um, so the second part of the conversation at the National Cabinet, um, where it's reported to be about this idea of the travel bubble, that yes, we're going to probably keep our doors closed to tourists and business travel um, uh, for a quite some time, probably well into 2021. But given the um, consistency that both New Zealand and Australia have tackled the virus, um, we probably can open much sooner. Now, when I first heard of this, I thought, okay, great. The next, the next family holiday is to New Zealand. Um, uh, but we have a very close immigration relationship with New Zealand already. We have basically open borders from a migration perspective. Um, and this takes that moral and says, okay, well, open borders between Australia and New Zealand, but closed borders with the rest of the world. Yeah, I would agree with that. I don't think it's going to be uh, a increasing political unit union per se, but we have had a, a very significant relationship in terms of travel, um, in terms of migration between New Zealand and Australia. I would say that it was actually in previous times um, easier to travel between Australia and New Zealand than there was, you know, passport free travel, which we don't have at the moment. But um, it's still, it is still a, probably the, um, you know, a close connection in terms of travel and business relationships, and also emigration from for a longer term. Um, so yeah, I think I think this is mainly mainly just returning to some normalcy um, with New Zealand, as opposed to a gigantic leap and or, or a, um, a, a closer union per se. I think it's just a, an attempt to return to normalcy in one aspect of our relationship with them. I always I always think the um, the New Zealand relationship is worth reflecting on because it shows how things can work. Uh, the original closer economic relations agreement that uh, was initiated by uh, the Fraser government under the leadership of um, Doug Anthony, the Deputy Prime Minister and leader of the National Party, is one of the, uh, one of the uh, great such instruments anywhere in the world in terms of the, the level of practical economic cooperation that can be achieved without without having to do political union and uh, it really gives the lie to everything that the European Union tries to do because it shows that you can have uh, closer economic relations without always having to have ever closer union and I, I recall when there was a point when the Kiwis uh, were doing very well and uh, and we were doing rubbish and uh, the, our respective currencies were approaching parity and some uh, well, let's call them idiots, were saying, well, wouldn't this be a great opportunity to have a currency union, uh, which would, of course, replicate all of the problems that the euro has. Um, you know, <laughs> for and, even uh, less benefit. <laughs> for even less benefit. Um, you know, the, the, uh, as we discussed on a recent podcast, it's, it's the currency union that's been driving the need for political integration in Europe, which is, so is deliberate. It makes no sense economically. So I just think the relationship that we have with New Zealand is terrific because it is about economic relations we don't worry too much about the politics and if uh if they join in uh, a body like the national cabinet on a very loose informal basis i think that's all upside 
uh, without any of the downside. I would also add to that in the sense that um, the Trans-Tasman Partnership or the the relationship that Australia and New Zealand has in terms of travel was a a document that was used to draft the Kanzuk Kanzuk um, agreements, which is the travel between the, um, the you know the former colonies, basically the England, UK, um, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Singapore, which was you know a possible policy solution when the the UK left the EU as to creating a, a you know, a union which wasn't based on politics, but it was actually based on um, the ability to move around in order to have economic and um, social gains, which comes with freedom of movement. So I would I would put that in the, the policy square as well. That our agreement with mm. um, New Zealand has actually been a a representation of what is possible uh, in terms of integrating with the world in a way that doesn't actually form a, a political union. Yeah, no, a great model. And, and Chris, something we were talking about earlier, which I'll I'll bring in, um, it was going to be at the top of the show, but I'll bring it in here, of course. Uh, one of the other relations we have with New Zealand is um, uh, New Zealand has a team in the NRL, <laughs> and uh, it's been remarkable, actually, how's this for cooperation? Uh, we had a flight direct from uh, Wellington into Tamworth, which is not even a, an international airport. Uh, Border Force granted an exemption for the Warriors to fly into Tamworth so they could begin training. Uh, we have Melbourne Storm had to uh, get on a bus and go to New South Wales, go to Albury so they could train because they weren't allowed to in Victoria. And um, and the Warriors were allowed into Australia. The The NRL is, is doing remarkable things by basically ignoring uh, all the polite ways of operating and they are storming ahead um with apparently which is the leadership style of um the chairman and uh as executive chairman essentially peter volandis um to get the nrl operating by may and it's just i found it a fascinating story to watch because it's um it, it shows that in order to get businesses operating um it's not you know it will require a push um the NRL and AFL, they actually need to push. If they're just waiting for governments to deliver a solution on a plate, it won't happen. And, and that's right. And, and so what is remarkable about this is our policy discussion usually is very um, reserved. We sit back and we think about policy proposals. Um, uh, we think about tax reform and they, they put out big tax documents and changes to superannuation and, all, and it, it, policy takes time. And it's usually instigated by policymakers. In this case, and I think both to the specific question of what our policy integration is going to be with New Zealand and the way that we open up, um, uh, things are just going to run at the policymakers because businesses have to make choices and businesses will be looking to identify the barrier that prevents them from getting back to work or bringing their employees back to the office or what have you. And it's going to be thrown up to the policymakers for basically up-down votes on, well, will you accept it or won't you accept it? And that's precisely what the NRL has done. They just, you know, okay, well, um, we'll get the permission from Border Force and we'll just we'll just we'll make the we'll make the decisions ourselves. Um, uh, unlike almost any time in Australian um, history in the last 50 years at least, 
things are just going to rush into policy change. And that's that's kind of exciting, but from a political perspective, really, really threatening to the authority of our policymakers, I think. Yeah, for a control freak like Morrison, so he was directly asked, he said, oh, according to the chairman of the NRL, um, the Warriors have been given permission to land at Tamworth. And he said, no, they haven't. That's not true. And he was asked and, again. And, and yet that landed. <laughs> and yet, <laughs> as if by magic, the the, um, uh, the permit was granted and they were able to land. So um, Morrison he loves to be a control freak. But yes, maybe you're right, Chris, that uh, this will be a... Um, a sign of things to come yeah. where people need to, to muscle up uh, a little bit and actually take control of their destinies. Australian public policy for the next few months is going to be very much forgiveness rather than permission, I think. I hope so. Otherwise, <laughs> we'll never get anywhere. No. We have come to that part of the show where we talk about our picks for books and culture, what we've been reading, watching and listening to. Uh, Chris, you've got a book which I'll just introduce... It's about the Spanish flu. I just wanted to share a little story I read about uh, on social via social media, but it was originally in the New York Times. A gentleman uh, sadly passed away with COVID-19. He was 100 years old, um, and all deaths are a tragedy, but at 100 is a fair innings. But uh, what made this a newsworthy story for the New York Times was he was, uh, one, of, uh, he was one of twins, and his twin brother had died during the Spanish flu. So the Spanish flu and COVID-19, 100 years apart. It was a good yarn. That is extraordinary. So um, uh, the book that I have been reading is by John Barry. It's called The Great Influenza. It's the story of the deadliest pandemic in history. Obviously, it's about the 1918-1919 Spanish flu. The book was published in 2005. Um, uh, it's a very interesting book. It's um, uh, there's a lot of tangential knowledge about the development of um, the American medical um, medical research, particularly that really grew up in the shadow and in and amongst the Spanish flu pandemic. But I've got two really significant takeaways from this book. Um, and of course, when we read it, we're, we're reading it precisely in line with uh, these days drawing um, relationships between what we're experiencing right now. The, the big thing is that the Spanish flu was absolutely brutal. Um, it had the, not, not everybody died from it by any stretch of the imagination, but it had a much more significant um, fatality rate than even the largest estimates of COVID-19 when they were made back in February and March. Um, but it was just a really virulent, it was a really rapid onset disease, and there was very little that they could do about the Spanish flu if you received it. You just had to hope that you didn't um, uh, didn't get very severe pneumonia because that was probably a death sentence for most people who received it. So a really brutal, um, uh, a really brutal disease. And interesting to think about because... Of course, these days we, we look back at the experience of the Spanish flu and um, try to take those lessons to be applied to our experience right now. I know in my field economics, a lot of economists are looking at how different cities managed the Spanish flu, how different um, uh, companies, uh, sorry, um, companies and countries managed the Spanish flu. It's not totally clear to me 
given the vastly different characteristics of the Spanish flu and our, our current pandemic, those lessons are, are very applicable. So that's the first big takeaway. The second takeaway is not so significant, but it was really interesting. So a, a, the Spanish flu was distributed unevenly across the world. It comes to different countries at different times, but it came to most countries during the First World War. And um, uh, that's why we call it the Spanish flu, because censorship prevented us from describing it from as probably where it came from, which was um, uh, uh, which was either Kansas or Wuhan. Texas in the United. <laughs> well, almost certainly it was an American. Or it came from the United States, but Australia. It arrived in Australia in 1919, so after the end of the war and after press censorship had been um, largely abolished. So, what much of what we know about the global social reaction to the Spanish flu, we actually know because Australians were publishing about it. And if you read the newspapers, um, the book goes into some detail about how newspapers in Australia reported it. Um, it was reported in much more terrifying ways than, than anything COVID is. So it was clearly, as they described it, a, a plague. It was a killer. It was the return of the Black Death. Um, it was a really horrifying disease. And um, it must have been just extraordinary to live through those times. Uh, I, I think the big thing that I take away from this book is, wow, we've, we've gotten, um, uh, we're, we're, we're lucky. We are lucky that we didn't have something as brutal as the Spanish flu, but we also have to bear that in mind when we think about the lessons from history. Yes, um, that modelling you referred to, I have seen some of that, Chris. Um, have you seen the uh, the paper that's circulating on the web, uh, The Hammer and the Dance, which relies on a lot of analysis of different state and cities in America and how they responded? It's the one that has the, uh, the famous story about, I think it was Philadelphia, yeah. they decided that there was far too much negativity around it and they should hold a parade to boost morale. And, uh, of course, as soon as they had the parade, everybody got the Spanish flu and died. And this has seemed to be the uh, um, as, uh, an argument for lockdown per se. Well, that's right. But, but uh, and, and uh, it's very useful to look at the lessons of history and it's very useful to understand better about um, how the Spanish flu played out. But given that our policy environment, our scientific environment and, our, and, and the characteristics of the disease are so different, I think it doesn't, and and it it doesn't give us an excuse not to reason through the policy choices. We can't just look at what happened in 1918-19 and say, well, they did this. This was successful then. This was a failure then, um, and 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 blindly apply that. And I worry that a lot of the, particularly the academic discussion, has been um, uh, has been using those prior models as um, as guidance for policy today. Absolutely. Now, also reflecting on experience, Dara, has been uh, your selection today. Tell us about that. Well, I've been reading a lot of, um, of pieces that were composed in solitude and I'm holding up The Wit of Oscar Wilde because it's uh, more aesthetically pleasing than my Kindle and what I've read out of it was De Profundis, which is the letter that, um, that Oscar Wilde sent to his lover or former lover from prison, so Lord Alfred Douglas. Um, and it strikes strikes one as, first of all, it counts, you can count yourself as lucky that you're not in Reading Jail in um, 
the turn of the century. So that, that's <laughs> in the 19th century. <laughs> yes. Um, so that that's, makes you feel much better that you're stuck in your house as opposed to a jail. Um, the other thing is that it, uh, it particularly highlights, um, you know, some of the character traits or character flaws that can appear um, if you're stuck stuck wondering about different things or ruminating about different things if you're stuck at, at home alone or in this case in prison and it really um despite the fact that the first half of the letter is really going over all the mistakes that were made by well he blames himself but at the same time he exhibits a bit of bitterness towards lord alfred douglas um and all the mistakes that were made during their relationship and it was a very um, I mean, obviously, we're, we're going on his account of their relationship, but I will talk about Lord Alfred Douglas in a second, but we're going on his account of the relationship and that it was very turbulent. But towards the middle of and towards the end of the letter, he starts talking about the, um, the, the issues that come with bitterness and that bitterness really blinds, um, blinds people and that, you know, ruminating in such a way and not um, not counting yeah uh, ruminating is actually not very useful and holding on to different situations is not very useful and um, it's really I think was a cathartic letter towards the end as opposed to trying to relay all his grievances about what happened with um, Lord Alfred Douglas and I think I think the Lots of people have noted that the two most important lines is um, the start where he says he dresses it to dear Bosie and at the last sentence he signs off as your affectionate friend, Oscar Wilde. So um, on one towards the end he's really almost let, let go of the situation in a sense. Um, so it, it is an interesting piece of literature. Interesting, interestingly enough, the biography of Lord Alfred Douglas was um, was the first book that uh, Douglas Murray wrote, and um, he he tells the story of um, Lord Alfred Douglas in the wake of of uh, Oscar Wilde, and that he himself was ended up in prison at the behest of Churchill himself after being sued for defamation um, and uh, also wrote a what was meant to be a cathartic poem or prose but it was also turned into a sort of sour bitter um, uh, expose of sorry, personality. I'll, sorry, Bo- Bozy also finished up in prison. Yes, he did. I, he, oh, he was sued by Churchill, of, interestingly, um, after saying that he was uh, uh, conspiring with Jewish finance um, so Churchill sued him, and he ended up in prison. So both both Oscar Wilde and uh, Lord Alfred Douglas launched uh, defamation actions, which actually resulted in them finishing up in prison. Yes. Yeah. Well, there you go. There's a lesson for anyone thinking of launching a defamation yeah, action. This only builds my contempt for defamation law. But go on. <laughs> yes. Obviously, before the age of uniform defamation law. <laughs> uh, no, I think it's a terrific choice, Dara. Um, and uh, Oscar Wilde, the great Irish uh, writer. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a, an argument for suffering, I guess, in terms of art. I mean, he was clearly a, a brilliant wit and writer but he you know he'd made his reputation for being um you know lively and gay um in one sense of the word and then of course 
uh, with the, the scandal and being discovered to be gay in the other sense of the word, uh, but the transformation that his years in uh, Reading Jail wrought upon him, he, he came out and produced uh, some remarkable works like The Ballad of Reading Jail and... Um, and the one that you've just referred to. Yeah, and I think it also changes his personality or his writing as well. And he's known as quite a flippant and um, unserious character throughout most of his work. And there's a there's a tale of him um, when he's visiting America and he, he visits many prisons when he goes there. And, um, you know... Real, and he, he makes some quip about uh, the literature that they're reading in jail. Even if they're innocent, they just still deserve to be hung because they're reading such atrocious literature. Um, <laughs> and, then, and then you see that like 100%, you know, uh, you know 180 turnaround when he, when he ends up in prison himself and it becomes a very much a champion um, of rights of prisoners in the end when he, when he is released. So... Oh, well, well, we'll pass this on to um, Andrew Bushnell for uh, the IPA's Criminal Justice Project, <laughs> which looks at um, punishment reform in more sensible sentencing and focusing on those um, uh, violent offenders rather than people like Oscar Wilde who really had no good reason to be in prison in the first place. <laughs> um, great. Uh, and thank you, Dara, for setting it up for me too by introducing Churchill um, in lockdown, uh, I've had many an occasion just to sort of gaze idly at my bookcases. And I realized that um, years ago when I was accumulating the paperback volumes of uh, the official history or the official biography of Winston Churchill, which was uh, started by his son Randolph and then later finished by um, uh, Sir Martin Gilbert, that I had seven of the eight volumes um, I'd only ever picked up the paperbacks in, in bookstores as I found them. And, um, and I remember that there is this thing called the internet and you can actually go and order them. And so it's the I only went, life we have these days. So <laughs> It's the only life we have. So I am actually holding up a copy of Volume 2, which was uh, Young Statesman, uh, Winston S. Churchill, 1901 to 1914. Um, reminds you what a just incredibly ridiculously long uh, public life this, this guy had. Um, so that was the last of the volumes that uh, Randolph Churchill wrote before they handed over the task to, to Martin Gilbert. And um, I, yeah, I read the other volumes back uh, when the sort of before I was married and had time to read seven volumes of a, an official biography. Um, and uh, but this one is actually an important one to read because it covers the period when uh, when Churchill uh, leapt from the Conservative Party to the Liberal Party, and to his detractors, this was always seen as just a sign of what an opportunist he was. Um, a young man in a hurry, just doing whatever it took um, to advance his position. It certainly, in retrospect, was incredibly well-timed. He, he jumped ship just as the Conservatives were going out and the Liberals were coming in. And uh, he had a long period uh, in the ministry and in the Cabinet as a result. Um, but what I think is relevant for the Looking Forward podcast is that the, the issue on which he split was actually free trade. Um, so I... I don't accept that this was simply opportunistic. And uh, he was in the Conservative Party, not necessarily happily, happily in the Conservative Party. He was not a, 
um, died in the wall Tory, but he was happy enough. But this was at the age when Joseph Chamberlain started to introduce the notions of uh, protectionism, of imperial preference. Uh, it was bound up with increasing taxation, but supposedly allowing discounts for colonies in the British Empire, which is you know the foundation of imperial preference. And Churchill genuinely argued against this, and I say genuinely because he was taking risks to do so. He became part of a, a ginger group of backbench MPs, uh, and then ultimately uh, left, gave up his seat in Oldham, had to go and contest a, a different seat for the Liberals in Manchester, and um, made some terrific speeches on free trade that w were then bound into a book. Um, he talks, uh, and, and some of the arguments I, I think are worth reflecting on because uh, free trade is um, coming under attack again. Uh, Globalisation is coming under attack again, and there are genuine issues with, you know, well, China. Um, but he sees it all in terms of geopolitics, and he and he basically says, you know, that um, you know nations who are trading don't, uh, are less likely to go to war. Um, he didn't want the Brit British Empire to resemble a medieval town that would be uh, walled off from the surrounding country, victualled for a siege, and containing within the circle of its battlements all that is necessary for war. <laughs> so he he saw free trade as inseparable from a global peace and I think to those who say well he saw the light um, when he came back to the conservatives in the 30s and accepted uh, imperial preference I would just say he probably it was probably a done deal by then and the world was hurtling towards war and he, he essentially given up that fight that he tried to fight uh, as a liberal you know in, in 1905 1906 um, it just reminds me what a what a not just a great leader, but what a truly interesting thinker, an effective politician and orator uh, Churchill was. Some of the, you know, as a result of the speeches he gave in Manchester, uh, a, a town that had been solidly conservative became solidly liberal uh, at the at the 1906 election. So, um, yeah, I'm sure there's. I think there is an abridged version by Martin Gilbert, or or you could read the uh, the Andrew uh, the Anthony Roberts biography that um, we interviewed. Uh, Roberts, of course, Chris, on a Looking Forward episode last year. So there are other biographies of Churchill around, but um, it's good to dive into the detail on one and, and, and just see how issues like free trade and, you know, they just there's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new under the sun, and, and that's a super interesting... I'm going to try to pick up that, that book of speeches, actually, by Churchill, because he's um, uh, leaning on a traditional British argument for free trade that goes back to Richard Cobden and John Bright and, in the fight against the Corn Laws, which is what we now describe as um, uh, commercial peace theory, which is that um, nations that trade together are much less likely to um, go to war with each other, um, this is an empirical question, of course, and it's been and and the the um, uh, I actually think there's a lot to this argument, but it has to be adopted um, uh, based on um, more recent empirical work. But it's um uh, it's a really traditional and sometimes forgotten argument for free trade that countries it, it's actually better understood the other way around. Countries that battle each other on protectionism are actually more likely to find themselves um, uh, are moving into battles on, of, of war and violence. Yes, rival trading systems. And um, 
uh, those great radical leaders, Cobden and Bright, uh, Churchill uh, being in, uh, were from, one or both of them was from Manchester, correct me if I'm wrong, Chris, um, but he play, pays due homage to them in those speeches. So I think you'll find it a very interesting volume and I'll, I'll send you a couple of little links that I found as I was reflecting on all this. And, and Victorians, of course, if they want to, um, uh, when they're allowed to drive places, can go visit the towns of Cobden and Bright to um uh, uh to to acknowledge our wonderful free trade history in this yes. country <laughs> yes even though victoria became and still remains the most protectionist state in the federation yes, but we can have zach orman on to to, to complain about that <laughs> yes <laughs> and we will in due course <laughs> You have been listening to the Books and Culture segment. You have been listening to Looking Forward, which is a production of the Institute of Public Affairs. Please do join or donate uh, at ipa.org.au to see how you can get around our research and access other great digital products and podcasts. You can track down the uh, the interview with Dave Rubin that our uh, colleagues Pete and James did on the uh, Yippa podcast. You can uh, look at the new Generation Liberty podcast viral banter how's that for a pun um and all sorts of great things like that uh you've been listening to me scott hargraves editor of the ipa review a big thank you to my co-host chris berg oh. and to today's uh, guest panelist dara mcdonald thank you it's great to be here thank you everything for everything dara thank you also uh to josh in the remote control room for pulling together this episode we'll be back with more looking forward next week <laughs>